0: Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. In today's special episode, we sat down with Michael Socora, founding director of the Socrates Project within the Reagan White House. In part one of this special series, we'll explore what the Socrates Project was, what lessons we can glean from the Reagan era, and how the Chinese regime was able to achieve a fast rise on the global stage. Let's dive in. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show.
1: Oh, pleasure to be here.
0: So big in the headlines coming up is the 20th National Congress in China, where Xi Jinping is seeking his unprecedented third term. So if he gets that, what does that mean for Americans, especially since Xi Jinping has this vision of the decline of America?
1: Well, if, if you look at it in this time and uh, position so far, he's really pushed the issue of China reclaiming its rightful position as the sole world superpower. And that's been pretty much accepted by the country. Uh, So, in some ways, if he still uh, remains in power, it's really going to push it further. If he doesn't, I don't see it's a major decline for uh, that initiative to uh, as a national objective.
0: And given that, how do you see that playing out, especially with China's current economic
1: state? Well. One of the differences between China and the United States and Americans in general, and I'm an American, so I will poke at them a little bit, is that what their objective is, their national objective, is something which they believe in as a long-term objective. So even if there is a minor downturn in the economy, they will continue pushing the objective of becoming a dominant, the dominant superpower. In the United States, as we change administrations, slogans change, uh, things like that come and go. It's not going to change in terms of China. So as we continue to decline, China may hit a couple bumps, but I don't see them pulling away from their main national objective, which is very detrimental to the United States.
0: And given China's rise, how was China able to kind of get there so fast? How did America maybe help?
1: Good question. I mean, if you look at it, China has risen to a superpower faster than any country in the history of mankind. And it wasn't that U.S. conscientiously assisted, but, as we determined in the Socrates Project, the United States shifted from technology-based planning to finance-based planning. And that shift is what opened the door for China to just accelerate tremendously what the difference is, in finance-based planning, the whole foundation of decision-making is optimizing the funds, okay? maximizing profit, whatever. In technology-based planning, the foundation is exploiting the technology more effectively than the competition in order to generate a true competitive advantage, which then dictates the funds, the manpower, the natural resources, and what have you. So when the US is doing finance-based planning, which is an anomaly, because we, the United States, was built on technology-based planning, it basically left us totally open and vulnerable to their technology-based planning. And then you take into consideration that China realized that. China took advantage of that in order to lull America into a false sense of security. And basically, China had an open door in terms of technology exploitation in the United States and around the world.
0: And, Michael, you mentioned the Socrates Project, so tell us about that. What is that?
1: I found Socrates, the Socrates Project, in 1983. In 1983, I was playing the game of cat and mouse with the Soviet Union, preventing the flow of technology from the West over to the Warsaw Pact countries. We saw something very interesting at that point in time. We saw that the U.S. and some Western countries were playing the game of competition radically different than what the Soviets did, and a couple of the other players. What we saw was, whereby, in the United States, all we did was maximize profit, and when it came to technology, we just left it to the eggheads to, in R&D, to come up with the next breakthrough, Okay, Russia was playing a very great, adroit game of technology exploitation, both offensive and defensive, both with the good guys and the bad guys, both military and commercial. And we also saw countries like Japan doing the same thing. So while we're just optimizing the money, which actually decreases your competitive advantage, but if you measure it from a financial perspective, it looks like you're increasing your competitive advantage. And I will give you an example in a minute. They were sitting there, adroitly maneuvering the technology. So we saw the Soviets were doing it. We saw that we were in a decline. This was 83. So, this was amazing, because, back then, everybody said, oh, it's just a minor perturbation. We will go right back on top. Uh, they said the problem with Japan was Japan, Inc., we need to play, level the playing field, things like that. So, we saw that China or China, they were at that point in time, but Russia mainly was doing technology-based planning. So what we did in Socrates is, we saw, because Socrates basically had a twofold mission. Number one, use all-source intel and other data to determine the true underlying cause of U.S. economic and military decline. So we saw it was finance-based planning. Then we saw adversaries were technology-based planning. The Second part of our mission was to determine how to reverse U.S. economic and military decline. And, again, this was the early 80s, when most people didn't even know it existed. So what we said and what we saw was the only way to do it was to shift the United States back to technology-based planning, OK? But we know we did it before World War II, which is when we shifted, because we talked to some of the old-timers at IBM and GE and places like that. They said, oh, yeah, kid, that's what we did back in the old days. So, but when we looked at Russia. We looked at Japan, how they were doing their technology-based planning, and we saw that they had become significantly more refined. They had advanced the whole process significantly. So we knew if we were going to totally rebuild U.S. economic health and military might that would ensure superpower status for generations, we needed to go far beyond what the Soviets were doing. So what we did is we looked at technology-based planning since the beginning of mankind. and We noticed something very, very interesting. Every so many decades, technology-based planning evolves forward, takes an evolution leap forward. Okay, how man utilizes technology to generate a competitive advantage. That was the scientific revolution, the industrial revolution, and the next evolutionary leap of technology-based planning was the automated innovation revolution. That's where you take the process of exploiting technology for a competitive advantage, develop, acquire and utilize it, and transform it from a trial and error art into a concrete science. So what we did in Socrates, and I will come back to that point in a moment, what we did in Socrates is figure out how to generate that next evolutionary leap of technology-based planning, how we exploit technology for a competitive advantage, automated innovation revolution. We built what we call the first-generation automated innovation system, which we had to validate. At this point, we're getting strong support out of President Reagan. We had to validate. And we did it on Star Wars, a Stealth, Counter-Stealth, and a bunch of other really, really leading-edge issues. okay. As a result, President Reagan had an executive order drafted for the system to be built and deployed as a national asset. Okay, now, here's one of the cool parts. So, the executive order was being drafted, deployed across, going to be deployed across the entire United States. That is one of the things that Reagan used in his negotiations with Gorbachev to convince him to bring down the Soviet Union. Because the Soviets had already seen what we did in Star Wars. They saw what we did in some other areas. And then they're looking at that being deployed across the entire country, economically and militarily. That meant we could fully decimate the Soviet economy at will. That was one of the bargaining chips used with Gorbachev. It was a quiet bargaining chip. Now, interesting enough, 2010, so we brought down the Soviet Union. 2010, who comes knocking on our door? Putin's people. They wanted us. They knew they had been tracking us very tightly, that we were developing the next generation of the system. They were tracking us very tightly. And they said, we would like you to deploy Socrates in Russia to rebuild our economy. Now, make a long story short, we were very careful about the military aspect of it, but we never came to terms, and the negotiations broke down. But we saw from their side that Socrates was a key element in those negotiations back in the 90s, late 80s, early 90s. So that was the Socrates project. Okay. Let, me, let me go back very quickly to this issue of transforming from an art into a science. If you look at technology breakthroughs, and it can be a big breakthrough, a minor breakthrough, any breakthrough in technology, it is nothing more than technology A bumping into technology B to produce technology C. That's all it is. There's no magic there. Anybody that says it is doesn't really understand how it works. But how they do it now is they hold cocktail parties. They go to conferences, and they hope Professor A with Technology A, bumps into Professor B at that conference, and they sit down and have a beer or drink some coffee and go, hey, I got Technology A, you got Technology B. You know, if we work together, we could produce Technology C. Wouldn't that be cool? OK? So what does National Science Foundation, what do the universities do to increase this innovation rate? They double the, double the funding for cocktail parties, literally, OK, because it's serendipity. Right now, technology exploitation is based primarily on serendipity. Now, some of you people say, well, we've got the internet, so we can see bigger places. Well, it's still a random approach. What we did in Socrates is went right down to the laws of physics to figure out how we could turn this trial and error, serendipity, low efficiency, high uncertainty process into a concrete science, where you knew exact and precise and accurate terms what A was, what B was, where it was, what would be the impact if they combined, what would be the competitive advantage it would generate, how long that competitive advantage would generate, and the nature of that competitive advantage in terms of uh, magnitude, duration, and what have you. That is what gave us the will, gave us the ability to outmaneuver Soviet Union and has the ability to outmaneuver China, because, if you look at China, for every one research the United States has. How many does China have? Depending on whose numbers you believe, it's either 10, 20, 30, 50, 100. How can one outperform R&D 50 or 100? You can't. But what you can do is outmaneuver them. So what we built in the Socrates program was the ability to exploit technology with unprecedented speed, efficiency, and agility. And that includes acquisition, development, and utilization. Sort of long-winded, but that was is the Socrates Project, and we're pushing right now to get it reestablished uh, in the country.
0: And Michael, so when you mention technology-based, what are you defining as technology?
1: Technology is any application of science to accomplish a function, and that's one of the very, very key points, because a lot of people, when they say technology, they're like, "Oh, it's computers. Oh, it's leading edge." No. It's any application of science to accomplish a function. That's one of the ways that China has been so effective in their technology exploitation, their technology-based planning, is because Americans would look at it and say, oh, the only thing that we need to to protect or address or R&D are these real leading-edge quantum technology or AI or whatever. China's technology strategies, national technology strategy, is adroitly maneuvering all the technologies, high-tech, low-tech, medium-tech, OK? It's the hard sciences. It's the soft science. So it's a very adroit. It's, it's comparable to somebody saying, well, you win a military battle by finding the best shot, putting him out there and let him win the battle. Anybody that knows military would say that's totally ludicrous, because in a military strategy, which technology strategies are based upon. In a military strategy, you're using tanks the way tanks need to be used, heavy tanks versus light tanks. You have got snipers. You have got all the various players, each doing what they do best, and then coordinating them in a fashion which allows them to work in a very coherent, systematic fashion, Okay. Same thing with a technology strategy. You have got high-tech. You have got low-tech. Each one has a role to play in generating a competitive advantage and in the economic health of a country. So the idea that, you know, the only battle is in quantum AI and things like that is totally ludicrous. That is a very small percentage of what makes a country competitive. It's that full range of technology.
0: That was Michael Sikora, founding director of the Socrates Project within the Reagan White House. And after a break, we hear more from him on how the Socrates Project was used during the Cold War and how that can be leveraged against communist China. That's coming up in just a minute here on China in Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus, I'm Tiffany Meyer. Next, we continue our special coverage with Michael Sikora, founding director of the Socrates Project within the Reagan White House. He sheds light on how the Socrates Project was used during the Cold War and how that can be leveraged against communist China. Let's dive in. And so during the Cold War, for instance, there was the espionage, stealing trade secrets, all these different sectors. Do you see the same formula working now against the Chinese regime? Or what can we learn from that administration, especially the Reagan administration?
1: Well, I mean, like I said, we at one point in my career before when we initiated Socrates, we were doing that. And the Soviets were very good, but China's 10 times better. Why? One of the reasons. There's two reasons they're better. Number one is because they had what? How many decades to put together all the paths into the various companies, countries, organizations to use for exploitation of technology? Number two is, one of the things that Americans don't understand is, well, let me me step back from that question. And I will come back to that question. Americans think we're in an R&D foot race with China where the whole game is played, where both sides come up with their targets, Okay, In almost all cases, we got the same targets, quantum, AI, bio, things like that. And then what you have to do is you have to go to the laboratory, put your blinders on, and race towards the finish line of the breakthrough. And the way to get it is spend more money than the other side. So what happens is, we're racing through, we think China's racing through, we look at their budgets, we look at our budgets, and we pass the CHIPS Act, which says we're going to add, was it, $263 more billion dollars into R&D, because we're going to get to the finish line first. That's not what's going on. China plays a very adroit game of offensive-defensive technology exploitation chess that's played worldwide. So it's a very adroit game. Offensive, defensive, counter, countermeasures, the whole ball of wax, which then brings us to the espionage, okay? Theft of U.S. technology is a very small element of that complete holistic technology strategy, okay? So if you look at a technology strategy, you have your technology acquisition maneuvers, your technology utilization maneuvers. If we look at the acquisition maneuvers, put in simple terms, these allow you to acquire the technology or prevent the other guy from acquiring the technology, offensive, defensive. Utilization is how you use the technology for a competitive advantage, okay, offensively or defensively. So if we look at acquisition maneuvers, there's a whole host of ways you can acquire the technology. And they go from very, very legal licensing all the way to extremely aggressive theft. Okay? But here's the key: it's that whole span. So if all you do is block the FBI, block some of this theft, there's all these other technologies going over there. And as the Soviets did, and this was always a tremendous cat-and-mouse game, there's multiple paths. So they may have a university student who has three PhDs in there, which is legal, and he's acquiring the technology, but at the same time, they've got some guy lined up such that if he gets kicked out, they can steal it. So what they're doing in any good strategy is you're looking at your risk-reward. What is the cost? What's the reward? So, if you can go with perfectly legal, cost, in most cases, is pretty minor, political, financial, whatever. So it's this very adroit game of very uh, numerous ways to acquire the technology and prevent the U.S. from acquiring technology. Because, in some cases, blocking the U.S. acquisition of a technology or the ability to pull the R&D to fruition is more effective than them aggressively moving forward with the technology. And there's p- very prime examples of that. OK? So, if we come to China's threat of uh, acquisition of U.S. Uh, technology, the only way to address it is by addressing their technology strategy. OK? Otherwise, we're playing an endless game of whack-a-mole, where all we're doing is we're looking around going, up. Oh looks like they're going to steal something. Let's rush in there and grab the guy before he gets on the plane with a suitcase full of data, okay? Sometimes we get him, sometimes we don't. They get on the plane. But what we know is is the technology strategy, where they're going to generate a competitive advantage, how they're going to generate the competitive advantage, technology utilization maneuvers, okay? What technology they need at what points in time with what capabilities. Once we know all that, and by, when you lay out a technology strategy, you're looking at what they're doing 5, 10, 20 years out. You can look out and say, this is the technology they need. They're going to need it in five years. Here is what it, the competitive advantage is going to give them. So now we know the criticality of that acquisition. We, know, we can tell you exactly where the targets are and roughly when they're going to go after it. So now, rather than just playing whack-a-mole, which a lot of people in the government because we work with all the various players and our government will say, yeah, we're playing a game of whack-a-mole. That's a pretty common explanation of what we're doing, CFIUS and things like that, okay? So in state, instead of playing whack-a-mole now, we're, we have the ability to step back and say, we know your technology strategy. We know what you're going to go after here, 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 okay? Now we can actually take the initiative to outmaneuver them in the technology to very effectively, adroitly... With unprecedented speed, outmaneuver them in the technology. So, switching from an R and D footrace to technology, a game of technology exploitation chess.
0: And Michael, given all the sectors that say the Chinese regime or the Soviets in the past used to get this kind of technology, if we were to use something like the Socrates Project, how do you guarantee that those people aren't compromised?
1: The people on our side, or. in terms of utilization of the system in terms of their of their actions?
0: In both. Because given that say you have this like fake PhD student and then you have the backup, if you have a system like this that can actually take them out, how do you make sure the people who are involved in this aren't actually compromised?
1: That comes back to a couple things. First of all, it comes back to whoever put them in place. Okay. I mean the people and that's always a challenge in the Intel community and FBI and places like that. Is that getting somebody thoroughly vetted? It's, got, it's getting more and more difficult. Okay, that's the one thing. But on the other hand, in the Intel community, which I've spent my entire career in, one of the basic concepts is need to know. Okay, which means you're only allowed to have the information you need to know to do your job. So instead of giving them full access, what you're giving them is a very narrow slice of what they need to do to do their job. So if we know that this professor is going to be compromised and somebody is going to try to turn him and turn over the technology or whatever, we can send FBI guys in there to, to go in there and try to secure it. But they're not aware of the bigger picture of what's going on. The point is, you're limiting your damage. So if one of those individuals in the FBI or wherever is, has been turned, They can do damage, but they can only do limited damage. So it's also a cat and mouse on our side in terms of making sure that, you know, you can never trust anybody 100%, so therefore you have to do a little bit of damage control uh, by limiting need to know and everything else.
0: That was Michael Sikora, founding director of the Socrates Project within the Reagan White House. And we'll have part two coming next Saturday. I'll explore how exactly a technology space can help not just us, but our allies. The ways it can counter adversarial threats like the Chinese regime and more coming next week. If you have questions for Michael Sikora on how this works, we want to hear from you. Leave a question down below, or if you're watching on cable, email us at chinainfocus at ntd.com, and we might bring him on for a live Q&A with audience participation. Thanks for watching China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer, and see you soon.